0: Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 114. I am your host, Walter, and joining me today are Aziel. Hey, everyone. Grail. Hello. And joining us again is Gabolatula. Tula. Hello. All right, everybody, we are back. Uh, we're going to do the volume 25 reread this time around. And a uh, quick update on the news. There's no news. Uh, you know, we're still in the holding pattern for the next episode, which is pretty much status quo these days. That's okay. Uh, but the other piece of news is that we have started doing uh, mini podcasts. Uh, some of you have probably already heard about them. Uh, they are explicitly, explicitly, exclusively for our Patreon subscribers so if you go over to patreon.com sknet, you can get access to those. I think there's three available now, a fourth coming online very shortly. Uh, they're about 30 minutes each, and they're just single topic, having a blast, uh, breezy, uh, extra content for those of you that really like this podcast. Go ahead and get more, just chip in a few bucks. And for those that don't know, we have a Patreon, and the money for that goes towards Puella's Translations. It uh, doesn't go to supporting the site doesn't go to line my pockets, just goes straight to Puella so she can keep doing great translations for us. So go check that out at patreon.com sknet. And there's no stuffed crust news either. For those that were listening in last episode, I did have a standard pizza yesterday evening from Papa John's. because cool. That's the one my son likes. I don't like Papa John's. What are the toppings that you get? So I like I just like a pepperoni. I don't care. I'll, I'll do anything. I don't like onions or mushrooms, really. But I'll do pretty much anything else. Um, but pepperoni is like right in the middle of the road for everybody else. I think it's pe- most people, right? Like I'll eat a pepperoni. It's the know? classic
1: American yeah. topping. I think. Yep. Papa so other John's than
2: that, used to like <laughs> supply my high school with pizza. So whenever I think of Papa John's, I think of like prison grade pizza whatever
0: that is i think it's pretty good prison i mean come on no
3: no i i I love it i love prison pizza (laughs) i mean if you actually tried prison pizza in the usa you'd probably end the loving papa john's by comparison because i'm sure it's just horrible
1: sweaty microwave
0: it's, it's probably just aramark which is the same company that's probably like all cafeterias in the whole u.s so right. you've had, if you've had a high school pizza, at, you know, at a cafeteria at a high school, you've probably had prison pizza. I mean, there's really not a big difference between high school and prison, not really. Um, right, so right. Volume twenty-five. Um, do we do the cover first or do context yeah, first? I think we, we do the cover. The cover. Cover. Yeah, it starts with the cover naturally. Um. I'm looking at it and it is yet again, one of the very literal uh, depictions of what happens in the episode. You know, we have guts kind of in the center uh, facing one direction and all these other little, like uh, little scenes are framed around him. Uh, so we have Farnese and Casca and the cl- cliff off. It's Shirke Casting looks probably. I mean, doesn't know <laughs> who knows what it is. Uh Eulira, and then we have the other two, a cervico and a citro. I and mean, it's appropriately framed for the way that the action in the mo- and the volume gets divided. You know, those are the groupings for where the action happens in the in the volume. So, yeah,
1: it's pretty a cool. sampler very, platter.
0: Yeah, very colorful, mm. uh, and I like the colored depictions that he chose, particularly for Cliffoth. That gives you a little bit of a a sense of the atmosphere at that place. I like that. Looks really cool in particular. Mm dark.
2: I'm always excited whenever the cover is something other than just Guts. As much as I love Guts, um, I I always like the group shot uh, covers. They're always very
1: very exciting. Yeah, this Mm -hmm. one and the last one I think are pretty great.
3: Azil? Sure, I agree. I mean, uh, I was thinking that originally I didn't like this cover very much, but once I saw uh, the actual illustration, uh which has you know it's reframed for the for the covers that cuts the edges. But mm. uh, I actually love the the illustration itself and I think it uh looks much better when you see it in full. I mean it's not much added, it's just a little bit wider, but I think it adds a lot to the actual uh the composition looks looks better that way. And I was thinking mm. if they ever do um like a deluxe cover, a re edition or something, I would like uh, that illustration to be shown uh, in a better way. But yeah, I, I, I love it.
0: One of the other things this cover does is it gives you some um, indication of you know the colorings of these. Uh, well, for example, Shirke, is that her cloak is not kind of grayish as you might uh, have assumed from the last uh, volume poster, but it's a very <laughs> vivid purple. And uh, her hair is a vivid green as well. Uh, you sort of got a little bit of that in the poster, but not quite like this, Or it's real green uh, in this shot here.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and Serpico's cloak as well, similarly, uh, is green. So just a little color details that Mira has um, finalized for the cover.
3: And did we know that Isidro's hair was red uh, by that point? I forgot. He, volume 24's cover. Oh, That's yeah, that. right, right.
0: Yeah, uh, But yeah, it's cool. Um, Moving on to the inside posters, two-sided. We have a very close-up yearbook photo of the troll, one of the trolls, with a nice wart growth happening. I don't know what's going on with that. But
1: Just what I always wanted to see when I opened it. Yeah,
0: really up close. Those chompers right there and his gross eye.
1: (laughs) And a face only a mother could love.
0: I do like how <laughs> it's all uniformly done with the kind of the same what's the word? Like brush size, you know, like a thick brush size gives a real texture to the whole thing.
1: Oh yeah. Uh we're getting a lot of texture. Yeah. The slimy. only place where it gets really small, I guess, is like the little uh blood blood veins, blood
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, and the eyes, the eye. yeah, 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 you're right. Sure. A little capillary, is that the right word?
1: Capillary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: On the other side, we have a completely opposite atmosphere image of Shirke and Flora, um, and I always like this because it kind of gives you a small indication of what life was was like, you know, prior to guts and them arriving on their doorstep, you know, living together, doing nice um, pastoral type lifestyle that they had together. Yeah. With this uh, spinning cotton, looks like
1: life was good. Um,
0: I actually wondered about this as I was looking at it. You know, there's the, I think it's probably older than Shakespearean times, but you know, there's the general Shakespearean thing about witches and spinning wheels of fate. Like that's the thing that he does. I think it's in Macbeth that has that with the three witches. And here's a witch spinning a wheel as well, you know, with thread and, I just wondered if that was something that Mira had intentionally thrown in there or not, but I don't know. That's a good I
1: question. I never thought about that. I just thought Flora was making some cloth for something, but she
0: well, she is just making cloth, but like symbolically, yeah, the yeah, thread symbolically and the wheel, she's kind spinning of spinning the wheel of fate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not that Flora herself is someone who is a manipulator of you know destiny or anything like that. It just she uh, knows a lot about it, right? That's, yeah. she's an authority on that kind of stuff. So. Hmm. I don't know.
3: Yeah, I think I, that might be a little over-interpretative, but who knows. Sure. I also like the light
0: coming in here. You know, it kind of like, it's almost overexposed. The way the light comes in, it kind of makes the v- direct background vanish, but it gives the whole scene a really appropriate lightness. I like the way it looks. All yeah, the colors I think like these faded. two
1: posters juxtaposed together make a really nice pair because you see both are very, like, Miura-style uh, illustrations, but he has such a range of... Uh, you know, tone between these two.
0: Moving along, we have the little preview. I don't know what to call that, the title image, I guess, uh, of Shirke above uh, Enoch just as she begins to descend into the astral world for her casting, which is very cool. It's our first real look at what the astral world looks like when she's in that um, mode. So, looks very cool. Ripples of water
3: around mm. her. Very appropriate, too, given uh, the kind of spirit uh, that was enshrined. There before the temple.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't actually know if that's a universal thing or not. Um, I feel like it is a universal thing, whether it's water or not. But water definitely plays a role for sure.
3: I mean, I think this one is specific to uh, Enoch and uh, that particular spirit. I think it's...
0: Okay. Um. So the place of volume 25 in the overall series, it's one of the very few volumes uh, where an action scene plays out in sequence and that spans the whole book or nearly the whole book. So that's why I tend to associate volume 25 in my head, you know, obviously with the Enoch fight, but just like I would associate volume 11 with the wild fight, cause those are just like completely contained within one book. Um, Along with volume 34, the the big Ganishka fight as well. Um, Whereas other volumes, you get kind of a a medley of different scenes and different directions. You know, these are meaty, rich uh, action sequences told with very few cuts, kind of told scene to scene to scene to scene as things play out. So... Um, I think the most important element of the whole volume is that it's the introduction of the challenges that guts begins to face now where he can't solve it on his own with the dragon slayer. And this is uniquely a group effort that they solve this with. And still Mira gives guts an opportunity to shine. He's still made special and distinct from the group and powerful, but you know, when Shirke begins to cast magic, you know, you, you begin to see the range of abilities the group has access to and the scope of the attacks that they can really dish out. You know, it's not just a cannon blast anymore. Now it's a tidal wave. So, and we've seen this group fight together before many times, but what's really cool about volume 25 is that Enoch is a place, you know, it has definitions. It's not an abstract forest or a field of snow. It's uh, the fighting in the village wraps around the temple. And once things kicks off, there's simultaneous action happening, happening in different parts of the temple, like on the roof, inside it directly outside it and all those different elements end up interacting with each other at certain points so it's also a way for me to split up the cast so he each gives them a distinct task to do somewhere out in the temple out in the temple on the temple outside so it's not something i can remember seeing in berserk quite like this and it's very cool i like the way that he has broken up the action in a way that is um role-based i guess But also it leads to interaction when big things happen. Um, The last thing I want to say is, the whole thing plays out like an action movie. From the very beginning, even into volume 24, where there's a slow build-up to the stakes, right? And the danger and the stakes keep ramping up as things progress. So it starts simply as troll extermination, which seems within their ability. But then other threats are introduced, and then the ogre shows up, and then the Kelpie brings rain, and so things keep, you know, the ante keeps getting higher and higher and higher, so... I like the way that things progress.
3: Mm. Yeah, I would maybe frame it a little bit differently from you uh, as far as the introduction of magic goes, because I don't think at that point um, it's all Guts can't handle it alone. It's more like, yeah, sure, something Guts might have been able to do by himself, but we are being shown. I think, like, what the challenge was specifically for that uh, volume was to introduce magic without making guts feel out of place or outclassed, uh, irrelevant, you know, w- without diminishing his accomplishments. And, um, and I think it's a huge success in that regard because he's still him and still does things that are extraordinary. But we've shown that magic can also do great stuff and it's complementary. And, uh, like you said, there's also the fact that they fight as a group in a very cohesive manner, uh, especially with Serpico. And so I think that's a, yeah, that's a very cool, a very important part of uh, the story, uh, as far as uh, development goes in that category, uh, the group form. We, we saw them in volume 23 and, and 24, uh, getting acquainted, starting facing challenges together. But here, he can uh, Gels, into that new um cohesive uh I would say more closely bonded uh, companionship.
1: Yeah, it felt very organic watching it unfold.
3: Mhm, yeah. Um I'll take the
0: first episode which is uh Magic Sword. So it begins just as uh, volume 24 ended with Serpico just starting out to use his um Sylph's Sword for the first time and we see that the first attack dismembers a group of trolls as you know, a horde of sylphs slices through them and cuts them into, like, a cross-section. It's a cool that the effect happens, uh, and they're not sure how effective it was. And then the next panel, you see that them falling to pieces like they were made of little parts, um, which was a very cool effect. Is The cross-sections we get of trolls in this episode is very interesting to look at. Like a little butcher's knife going through them, basically. Um not, to, not one to be left out of the action. Sidro tries to throw, throw berries that Shirka gave him, but it all kind of, all it does is really rile them up. Um, we also see that uh, not only that Serpico's um, new sword ha- is effective, but we also immediately see how the cloak can be put to use where it deflects an incoming uh, thrown spear from a troll by swirling wind around Serpico. So you get an indication of what his new abilities could be uh, in, a, in, a, in a battle. Uh, the trolls gather around Casca, but Farnese covers her with her body and they're shielded by the chainmail that they're wearing, the silver chainmail. It's a moment of self-sacrifice that Serpico makes note of. Meanwhile, all the other villagers are being brought into the temple and a group of trolls stands between Serpico and the others, but Guts finally draws his sword and takes out a whole line of trolls in one spectacular two page swing. And that is the summary. Um, I like how there's a couple different little notes that Mira drops through this opening episode. This is really the beginning of the fight. You know, the trolls are invading in the previous episode, but this is the real first, you know, first blood kind of moment for the ensuing action That's going to take up most of this volume. So it's all in sequence from here, but I like that Mira drops little hints about what could happen or laying a seed for the future. So for example, you know, we see as they're running away from the trolls that the trolls devour their own. Uh, as they are um, trying to pursue them so they're just hungry they don't really care what it is they just want to eat and that's meat and they're going to eat it they don't really care and that comes into play a little bit later on as well um, and Asidro is a theme throughout this volume that Asidro sees you know all of his teammates doing great you know impressive stuff and less wanting to help but more also wanting to maybe be a part of the spectacle <laughs> he really wants to have his cool moment too you know and that kind of that kind of uh, leads him into danger later on in this volume, but you know we see that start in this episode here. It's like a recurring,
1: yeah. That's thing that sort of his goal him. throughout the fight,
0: <laughs> yeah. Really, and into several more volumes. Really, he, fe- yeah. he feels like he needs to establish himself because everyone else is doing all this cool shit. So,
3: hmm. speaking of cool um,
1: shit, this this episode <laughs> had a lot of panels and two page spreads that I think have been uh, colored and recolored over the years. They're really popular. Mm-hmm. From the part where Isidro is like looking down and the, the sylphs are surrounding him, and, and then the, there are just like so many panels and, and pages here where Guts is doing badass stuff with the trolls and the parts are flying mm-hmm. everywhere. and Everybody loves these ones, I think. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, the moment with Farnese as well uh, was interesting because she's kind of putting into action some of the thoughts that she's had, um, but it's really. I can't think. Is this really the beginning of their real bond? Like it kind of like starts with this 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 volume I feel like and it progresses from there. Obviously it gets deeper in the cliff off where she feels like a personal responsibility to her uh, and that grows as they go as they go along.
3: Yeah, I think it's a progression. I mean we have mm-hmm. shown some of it before obviously and some more in this one because she puts herself in the way of danger uh, You know, of actual danger. It's not just uh, evil spirits or whatnot but actual beasts who can pose a, a serious bodily threat and uh, yeah like you mentioned that goes on more and more on top of the temple within the cliffhose and so on
0: mm-hmm. i'm trying to find the panel yeah is this where it is uh where serpico manages to take out someone who's being held hostage so when he first uses the the sword, it makes like this big tornado kind of thing, and it rips through uh, the trolls. But then the next time he uses it, there's two women being held by the trolls, and he's able to kind of more surgically uh, slice them. So you see that it's not just, it's a weapon that can be used with precision as well. So it's just showing you the range of the types of attacks he can do.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Finesse i I think uh specifically in this episode, in uh, very few pages, Mira manages to show how powerful the magic artifacts can be, like you said, that big tornado at first, then deflecting the spear with uh, uh the mantle, then uh trying to slice more methodically and afterwards uh mm-hmm. a few episodes down Shirke remarks on how fast Serpico uh has adapted to them as well, so I think it's also um a commentary on that, on the fact he manages to, he gets the hang of it very quickly, which is uh, in line with his character. Something um... about
2: how the attacks look
3: um,
2: with Serpico's weapon, too. There's something actually kind of more brutal about how like, you know, when Guts attacks, blood is flying everywhere, and it's just like, just spattered and messy, and um, it's it's so much more cold with Serpico's uh weapon here. It just like things fall apart when I uh, I don't know how else to put it, but it's, yeah, they're
0: perfectly cut, like surgical strikes versus like a a you know a tank being <laughs> shot at a big body, you know, right, yeah. right, and yeah, I think it definitely that's looks
2: different. Cool, like in comparison to guts, it's like yeah, and it's, it's also a cool way to show differences in character.
3: Yeah, and the way uh, in his first attack when he focuses and strikes a strong hit, basically, uh, the way they're cut almost indiscriminately, you know, like their arms are cut some parts, the head is half cut. It's also, I mean, I see what you mean. It's. Um, it feels like a force of nature kind of thing and not just a guy with a sword slashing through in a specific uh, move, if you see. Right, that. right. So, I understand yeah. what you mean. And I, I was thinking regarding what you said about Isidro earlier, Walter. Yeah, I find it interesting that, uh, his behavior is presented in a pretty funny way where he's trying to, to, uh, participate and do his part. He sees one alone. He runs towards it with his sword. Then, uh, he, he runs away when he realizes there's actually a whole bunch of them. And I think it's also, um, uh, you we see, we end up seeing the power of these consecrated berries that Shuke gave him throughout this uh, volume. And uh, it's interesting to see how they'll stop the st- trolls in their tracks, but there aren't enough to completely deter them. Um, and yeah, same way for the usefulness of the silver chainmails, uh, when the trolls gather upon Farnese and, uh, and, and Casca. So, you know, when you put that all together with Serpico's uh, items, Almost everything is being shown in use in this one episode, except for uh, Isidro's dagger, but that actually doesn't really come into play in the Enoch fight. So it's Mm -hmm. interesting that all these elements are set up very early on, so they can then come into play afterwards. Uh, I just thought that was pretty clever um, of Murat to set things up like that. Yep. That's all I had for Magic Sword. I'll
0: pass it over to Azil. For the next one.
3: Sure. Well, I just have one thing to say, which is actually a good way to transition, is uh, kind of a repeat of what I said earlier. I think the way the episode ends is brilliant because uh, we're shown the awesome power of Sepiko's magic items and how he can cut like five trolls at, at a time. Um, but then they end up still, despite that, being surrounded and in a bad spot. And then Guts enters a fray. And as a reader, you're reassured that. Even though magic is great and those magic items are super powerful, whatever, but Guts' power, which he's grown accustomed to, isn't diminished by them. You know, he's still very powerful. And so the next episode, Mirror of Sins, uh, opens up that way. We see that the trolls aren't deterred uh, by the previous attacks and they launch a full onslaught on Guts, but he makes short work of them. This amazes and hurtens the villagers and it gives Isidro Serpico, Farns and Casca an opening to get to the temple. Uh Shoki also reflects on the nature of God's power from up top, uh, that it might be the result of him existing within the interstice. And uh her attention is also drawn once again to his sword. But she has better things to do. She has to cast a bulwark around the temple to prevent the trolls from getting to the villagers. Um The priest is incensed at the idea of her doing that but he can't get the mayor of the village on his side because they've been woe by what Serpico did. Meanwhile, Guts and Serpico hold back the trolls while Shirike starts to cast a spell. Isidro wants some of the action as well, still, but he's out of his death, and like Puck suggests, he's actually got more success with throwing berries to send trolls running than actually fighting. <laughs> um, meanwhile, it's Morgan's triumph as the villagers watch the spectacle from within the temple, But the priest actually gets to the roof and is determined to stop Shiruke from doing what he perceives as a desecration of the temple. Farnese notices that and she follows him. On the roof, Shiruke is chanting. She's in a trance. Ivarula attempts to stop the priest, but he smacks her away without as much as a look. Uh, Farnese tries to confront him and she realizes he's the same as she used to be, a fool who would send people to die in the name of God. This leads her to doubt her legitimacy in stopping him. However, Casca's presence gives her renewed confidence and she physically interposes herself. Uh, But they're stopped in their struggle by a group of trolls who've climbed the walls and have reached the roof. And there's also danger inside the temple as well, as trolls have entered through the windows by the altar at the back of the church. Um well that's pretty much it for the summary and I don't have much else to add as I felt it was simpler to know the details in that order. Uh the one thing I'll point out is that uh Darkos translated Ivarera's words as saying I stuck the charm, um single form, uh and that's because we see a single picture of one little mm-hmm. charm being stuck, but we know that the formation of the Cardinal points, uh like its name implies, requires four tags at the four points. In Mm -hmm. Japanese, plural form isn't always indicated, but in that case, very clearly, she stuck four tags at the four cardinal points for the spells to be cast. And that's it. Uh, What do you guys think of this episode?
0: I like the way it opens. I love the massive slash that Guts does, and then he pivots his foot, and then continues the swing to make like a complete arc around him. Um, I think that's very cool. I like like the way he incorporated the momentum. Uh, and the, the slight pivot allowed him to keep swinging.
3: Yeah. Pretty cool. Love
1: yeah. it. It's two-page spread paradise, volume 25. It
0: it's one of those. Yeah. yeah. I kind of lost track of how many he he killed. <laughs> <It's> so <laughs> many. Yeah. Uh, but- I, um, what was it? The images of the trolls on the Falcon symbol at the end, I really like the way this is shown. Um, and because the... The falcon symbol itself—it's kind of illuminated from behind, so it makes the troll forms look, you know, just like shadows with eyes, basically. And also, the way that they're portrayed is furry and kind of just like animalistic, obviously. Whereas the the form of the falcon looks, you know, you know, perfect, like it's a statue. There's like the contrast between those two things, like they're desecrating it, basically.
3: Yeah, yeah, visually
0: sure. works with it as well.
3: So, so when Mira, uh, I don't know what technique he used to draw them, but yeah, it's very effective, it makes them look very eerie. Yeah. Even the weapons look furry. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> One thing I also liked regarding the trolls is how they're just kind of portrayed as being this, almost like a bacteria, you can't get rid of them, like they're swarming guts and Serpico and Isidro at the front, they're coming up the. the roof of the temple, they're coming in through the altar window, it just really gives you this sense of, like, overwhelming like, oh shit, feeling, which I think uh, Mira does really well in this episode.
3: Yeah. And it's interesting because it's designed in such a way that the actual spell, uh, Shirky casts is actually very appropriate to protect uh, from this kind of vermin. So, yeah. uh, yeah, so so it, it just makes the whole thing more, how to say, um, uh, interesting from that perspective yeah
0: the comments that Shirake makes about Guts' sword um, it, it did lead to a bunch of people wondering you know kind of where Mira was going to take that is it saying that Guts is stronger and can that's why he can lift the dragon slayer whereas others can't um, but the, really I think the purpose of her introducing these things is really to draw attention to the, why the sword is special I and mean, as we eventually learned volume 26 we, we even see it in the, the way the shadows coil about it you can actually see the effect that Mira and his assistants used on that is it coils around the blood of the sword and not the actual sword itself. So it's kind of already drawing attention to what makes that sword, you know, special in addition to it being awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that it is absorbed the spirits of, of, through the blood of, you know, all that it is, you know, slain.
3: Well, there's also, I feel like in this case, uh, I, I, the translation doesn't really help because it's she, she's saying two things, basically. She's saying... His strength is definitely superhuman. He's he's above the average human and she's wondering if that's because uh he was uh he exists within the interstices, and that's what gives him that strength. Eh? yeah, it's it's a plausible explanation and, and might actually I mean that's the most logical explanation for why he how oh, he could bridge that gap. You know, he already had a mm-hmm. huge sword before and he already was extremely strong. But now he's crossed a chasm to be able to wield the dragon slayer like that and yeah that might be an explanation for it and then she's like hey by the way there's that sword, the shadow on the sword and so I think like these are two different things hmm. uh, the fact his sword has that peculiar shadow around it which is explained um in the Cliffhors later on and the fact that he's a- just able to wield that huge uh, chunk of iron uh, these are two two different things
0: um, I didn't have any more notes on this one, but um anybody else does, feel free. Otherwise, we move on.
3: All right. It's pretty straightforward.
1: Yeah. Yep. A lot of them are. So we are ready to move on to the next episode, which is magic. Uh, we begin the episode with Guts, Serpico, and Isidro fending off the trolls outside of the temple. In a brief moment of levity, Isidro wonders aloud whether trolls are really incorporeal beings because they smell so bad. (laughs) Realizing that the trolls' numbers are too great and that they have them and the villagers cornered, all while while Shirke is still casting her spell, Guts orders Isidro and Serpico inside the temple to protect those villagers and buy the young witch some time. The two agree and leave Guts to his work. Back inside the temple, the infiltrating trolls menacingly approach the villagers. Serpico and Isidro are trying to get to the head of the crowd to fight them off, but aren't having much success. Then, Serpico has an idea. In a burst of wind, Serpico uses his cloak to jump above the crowd of villagers and su- successfully dispatches the trolls with the silk sword. The villagers are shocked, and Serpico leaves Isidro to protect the temple while he runs off. Isidro complains that his salamanders didn't have a chance to show off again. Of course, they blast a burst of flame right in his face for another <laughs> classic Isidro comedy moment. Back on the temple roof, uh, the priest of Enoch, the entranced Cherke, Farnese, and Cascar are all being approached by yet another group of encroaching trolls. While the priest is struggling with coming to terms with his imminent death, Farnese notices that she and Casca have become separated, and Casca is being approached by several trolls again. A mysterious, or the aura of the, the silver chain mail glows around her again, temporarily warding off the creatures, but with a wild scream from Farnese, the trolls are quickly distracted. She whips out her silver dagger to injure the trolls, and is quickly reunited with Kaska. Meanwhile, Shirke continues to try and contact the spirits in order to cast her needed spell, and her astral body is shown separated from the action as the scene atop the temple goes on around her. We are now back inside the temple where Isidro has just used his last berry against a troll while more approach. He wonders what Shirke is up to that's taking so long. He's now forced to take on a troll in hand-to-hand combat, and struggles to effectively use his new salamander dagger in harmony with his larger sword, and is left vulnerable to a troll attack. Just as the troll's club is about to come down, Morgan jumps in and takes the blow uh, to his back, saving Isidro from a grievous wound. While the villagers are emboldened by Morgan's selfless act and begin to fight off the trolls, Isidro is left with the unconscious older man whose condition is now unknown. Returning to Shirke, she calls in her astral form out the four elemental kings to cast a spell protection on the temple. She summons them one by one, and as she completes the spell, the stormy sky opens up to the awe of those outside.
3: That one's a dance one. I got the easy one, you get the hard one. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, it was fun. It, it was an action-packed one, but I think it just continues the action from the previous episode, and and uh, just kind of continues to reinforce the themes that we've been talking about, like how Serpico is continuing to learn how to use his artifacts, and Serpico or, or Isidro is just sort of like struggling a little bit.
3: Hmm. Yeah, it escalates things. Um, if you, I, I got a, a few few notes. If you, if you're okay oh, with yeah, that. Oh yeah, go ahead. So first thing is that it's nice to see why the trolls are afraid of the berries. Because uh when Isidro hits a bullseye in one's mouth, it pretty much just blows his head off. It oh kind yeah. Of weird, you know, you see steam even coming out of his eye. So yeah. that's that's pretty cool. Um I also find Isidro's comments about the trolls very interesting. How why they are astral beings, they aren't like the spirits they're used to, they're more like gross beasts that stink of like itself blood and shit so yeah. it's interesting to see that the difference between the kind of spirits Gus has been dealing with and these creatures who are from the astral realm but have managed to cross over uh, in that form Um and yeah, another thing is uh, throughout the whole thing like the the whole volume you see Puck continuously root for the wind elementals while Isidro is just <laughs> fucking, fucking up. So that's just, that's just pretty interesting. It just, just made me laugh, uh, yeah. several, several times while we're reading. It, it also, always funny. <laughs> uh, and yeah, s- still, just like the previous shots of guts in the, uh, previous episodes, the one where Sepiko jumps over the crowd, I think is just really gorgeous. Uh, and, uh, I really love how Mura drew the effect with the wind. Uh, you know, blowing on people's faces, that kind of stuff. I, I just thought it was really great.
1: Yeah, and I like the detail of how the cloak is... It almost looks like it, it's independent of any body, and then it shows Serpico's legs poking out. I thought
3: that mm-hmm. was great. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And also, that kind of sort of got its own will. Yeah. So, uh, pretty, pretty cool. And lastly, yeah. I like the social d- dynamics here, where after Morgan saves Isidro, the villagers get out of their torpor, and fight back. Yeah. And I uh, somehow I find that very realistic, you know, it's a kind of, they're stunned, they're unable to move, but when one guy got does something, they're like, oh, let's go! And they, mm-hmm. they fight back, so I thought that was really cool.
1: Yeah, it's endearing too, because all this time you're rooting for, for the group and you want them to do well, but now you're sort of like, okay, the villagers are getting in on it, so props to them, you know? Yep. Yeah.
0: It's one of those moments that, to me, reminds me of Seven Samurai because the same kind of thing happens where the samurai come in because the villagers feel helpless against you know, the force. But then, once the samurai you know start shedding their own blood, then the villagers you know come in as well and start fighting.
1: That's a really cool comparison. I, I like that movie. I didn't think of it when I was watch- reading this, but that's cool. Yeah, it's, a, it's just
0: a big defensive story. As it could be, yeah, many inspirations.
3: Yeah, and, uh, I feel like it's also very much how Mira structured that, that whole fight. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to learn he was inspired by those classic, uh, stories mm-hmm. uh, or even specifically that movie. But, uh, yeah, just, uh, even just thinking about Yojimbo, the idea of a lone swordsman coming into a village that's got a problem and he starts fighting back the, the bad guys and, you know, that, that just opens everything. I feel like that's mm-hmm. something uh, Mira might uh, have taken inspiration from uh, in, in general in some parts of the story. But then again, uh, like pretty much every other media out oh, there, even the whole uh, Western uh, genre is just based on that. So, <laughs> Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah,
0: Sergio Leone just saw a couple of Curacao movies and I'm like, I can do that. <laughs> um, I really appreciate this episode for – really portraying magic as a huge force. It's really a unique moment in the series because so much of Berserk is very grounded when it comes to what it's showing you, you know, you know what a castle looks like, you know what a sword looks like, you know what arm looks like, all that's very grounded. But now we see these otherworldly bodies that are bigger and larger than, you know, anything in the human world. Like we see the, the skirt or the dress of this wind uh, king, Uh, over a field, like in some distant place, you know, it's just floating out there, you know, a huge massive thing that Shirke is summoning. And you see how small Shirke is. And the same with all the others. They just look like huge, massive, powerful beings, which is unlike anything that we've seen in this story before. And I also like the way that Mira has depicted, like the way Shirke is interacting with these things. Like she's this white form in darkness and her hat kind of is tethered back to the ground, it spills out behind her. Goes back to her uh, physical body and her her staff kind of like becomes like infinite or like a ripple towards the thing that she's communicating with. Just like the visual iconography of how he's connecting this to the astral world, you know, beyond physical world.
1: Yeah, it's like unraveling. It's so cool. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm, Yeah, he did it very, very thoughtfully. And I guess to give some details on a a spell, which is the first big spell we actually see her cast. Um, So it's based on the Kabbalah. Uh, which has its origin in Jewish mysticism, but was later co-opted by, uh, European magicians during the Renaissance and afterwards, mixed with various other disciplines like alchemy and astrology and such. And, um, Darkos translation of it isn't great. Uh, but yeah, it's based, uh, it's based on the, on the Kabbalah. And, um, <clears throat> there's interesting things, uh, which, uh, at the very end, um, the translation they gave is not... I feel like they didn't really uh, actually check what the words are, but uh, I found it interesting that um, when you usually translate the uh, Kabbalistic prayer into English, um, one of the five uh, sefirot that uh, is translated is Malkos. And here Mira translated it as uh, Marukot. And he basically translated directly from Hebrew, which I found interesting. It's something he tends to do most of the time is he'll take, uh, the origin version of a word and translates it, uh, transliterate it directly into Japanese. So yeah, just an interesting thing. And he also modified one of the words, gedura. He modified it at, uh, gepura for some reason. It's also something he tends to do. Sometimes he will, like for Ganishka or Geyserik, he will slightly change one of the uh, one of the letters, maybe to distinguish it from reality, to make it its own thing. I, I don't know. But uh, yeah, those are those things uh, I found interesting to mention.
1: That's really interesting. I don't know anything about Kabbalah, so I didn't realize that these were like actual references to something.
3: Yeah, it means, uh, I believe the actual meaning in Hebrew is, uh, as above, so below, uh, power forever. Amen. Something like that. I, I'm just saying so from memory, so I'm, I'm not quite sure, but it's something like that. And so those words, uh, ate, um what is it? It's, uh, ve, gepura, ate, ve, gedura, marukot, le, oram, it's uh, it's actually, it's not in the right order, but it's part of that Kabbalistic uh, prayer or incantation type thing. Wow. Cool. Yeah. The, the name of the cliffhort is actually also based on uh, on the Kabbalah.
1: Right, right. I remember reading about that before, and, and I thought that was cool. So it's neat that there's kind of that connection.
3: Yeah, it's something he tends to so it's 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 taken from that, but without the associated meaning because the clifford is the opposite of the Sephiot, it's like the ten emanations, it's got tons of stuff behind it, but Mira just took the name, applied it to something because it was cool, and that's it. There's no other connection it's also I something over the years we've seen people try and you know derive connections and try to intuit something from it. It's just you know don't bother much much like uh geyseric is a was a you know in real life was a king of the vandals uh but it's just yeah there's just a fictional character he took a cool name applied it slightly modified it and that's it there's no more to it than that
0: the phrase, as above, so below, Azil, were you saying it's translated there or is it actually present here in the actual text?
3: Oh, no, no, no. That's, uh, that's what it means in Hebrew. That's what the original, uh, thing means in Hebrew, but it's not used in Berserk. It's not meant to be. Here is a story. Okay. It's just supposed to be some kind of, uh, occult incantation, the meaning of which yep. we're not meant to, to have. Uh, what she actually says that we, uh, we can actually know is what she, you know, the actual incantation in Japanese, like, be happy, O king of the east, your spirit becomes a breeze rising from the mountains, and so on, and so on.
0: The, um, the two page spread, when we finally see all four of the entities on the page, uh, something interesting is happening because you see deeper in the image that's shown, we, we see the actual temple. Uh, with the forms of the trolls around them and the priest there as well. But then you see this kind of like idealized version of it where the the beings are actually surrounding it. So you see two layers of the, the temple. And I wonder if that's like the astral, you know, version of the temple. Like that's the thing that they're protecting, whereas the physical one is down there. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just wondering why Mira chose to depict it that way or, or if it really has to do with some kind of rule set about how they protect protect this thing. I don't know.
3: It's a it's a good question, I'm not quite sure because it's not just an astral representation because otherwise the trolls would also be there since they're astral creatures. So I yeah. think it's more it might just be a, a place for Shiruke to be or maybe when she casts a spell her you know immediate surroundings are also pulled up with her, you know, in there some kind of uh, hmm. most basic representation. How yeah, I think she's giving them like a target, like here. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's uh, probably what they're meant to protect. She's asking them to protect that temple. Mm-hmm. And so she's materializing the temple uh, to them so that they can protect it. It must be something like that. Uh, uh, maybe she's holding the image of the temple in her mind and she's showing them that. Yeah. I, I yeah, maybe that's, that's what it is. Yeah, that's what I think. Okay. She's showing them that so that they know to protect that place. And mm-hmm. that's why... She's there, but we don't see other people. We don't see the trolls because they are protecting um, a location. Right. Okay, I'll take it over.
0: Uh, anybody has anything else on this one? Uh, nope. Okay. Um, There are two titles. There's a Dark Horse title, which is the Arcana of Invocation. And then there's the one that Poila had translated, which is the one I'm going to go with. I think it's the, the true meaning of prayer. Is that right, Azil?
3: Yeah, true meaning uh can also be something like secret art uh of prayer. Mm-hmm. But uh yeah. So what what's curious is why they chose to use invocation. So Arcana it's a it's kind of a stretch, but when you think of a secret art and uh you play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons, why not? You know, I'm not sure it's uh fully <laughs> accepted in the in English language to use that word, but Kind of a neologism, I think. But in any case, Got that's fine. But invocation instead of prayer, eh. Uh, I think that uh, deviates the actual meaning from what it should be. Because in this, she's talking to the, uh, the priest about prayer specifically. So mm-hmm. like, I, honestly, I don't know why they, they chose that. Uh. <laughs> I mean, the the title itself
0: is meant to represent how uh, this is a similar exercise happening between what Shirake has just done and the act of prayer. So she's it's it's part of her explanation to the priest about how she was able to do what she just did. Yeah. Um, So the four kings barrier is finally cast and the trolls immediately uh, begin to melt within the temple. Uh, The priest is stunned, unable to avoid being faced uh, with actual magic. And Shirke begins to explain that uh, the beings around them are are surrounding them are protecting them, and they're the same as the four cardinal kings written in the scripture of the Holy See, which implies kind of a split at some point, but I'll get to that later. Um, Shirke explains how she is able to cast such spells by making a sanctuary in her mind where she communes with the spirits in the astral world. And suddenly the stakes are raised by the approach of a new creature, uh, the ogre, who towers above the houses of Enoch and threatens the temple despite the barrier by hurling wooden beams at the structure. So first thing I wanted to say about this episode is how he has visually represented um, the you know, massive beings of power here. And the way to do it is you know light and texture. They're beings of light. So how do we, how do we show them as distinct you know, he chose basically uh, textures as how you show them as distinct. So the the water one looks like a water texture, and the the, the, the same with the fire and uh, the wind. I just like how Mira was able to achieve that, despite them being basically formless. You know, they're really what the people are seeing are hues of light. It's a difficult thing to draw, I think. Yeah, especially uh, in black he, and
3: white because yeah. totally, if this totally color it would be much easier.
0: <laughs> yeah, but even beyond the texture part the look of the atmosphere in the temple uh, completely changes, like the lighting in the room. You can see it reflected on their faces, on the walls, like on on, the, on that nice shot of sidro looking up. Uh, it just looks very unique. Like it's, it's just a, a blinding light in front of them, but it's it implies color even though it's black and white. It's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, I think it's really cool.
3: Yeah. It kind of um, uh, reminds me of like uh, Nora Borealis. That's mm-hmm. kind of how I picture it, uh, this okay. kind yeah. of eerie color
0: the um what i really like about when this big moment happens this is probably the one of the two really big moments in this whole volume uh once she casts it you know it unifies the focus of the action no matter where what what's happening out guts is looking at this serpico's looking at it everyone's looking at the same thing so it pauses all the action while everyone looks and kind of admires it so despite There being action on all sides of this temple and in inside and outside, it's one of those unifying moments, which is very cool. Everything kind of slows down, which gives Shirke an opportunity, you know, for the story really to explain what it is we're seeing, how we're seeing it, etc. I mentioned it in the summary that there's this little, just little hint that Mir dropped. About the Holy See and what Shirke just did, she says that the the, car, the four cardinal uh, she calls them guardian angels written of in your holy scriptures are the same beings that we're seeing here. Which to me, kind of just just you know on the sly says that the, the formation of the Holy See, at least in some part, was based on you know actual um, you know magical phenomenon that you know ma- magic users are familiar with. And we've talked about that a little bit before, but here's kind of a direct piece of evidence linking the two texts. That either the Holy See kind of steamrolled, you know, different. To what would they would they would you know deem pagan beliefs and kind of incorporated it into its own doctrine, or the Holy See you know was launched as some kind of you know magical thing and that then became you know what tainted or uh, desecrated in some way to become what it is now. So Mort, I, don't, I don't know, but yeah. it implies... It implies that it came from a similar branch at some point, which is interesting.
3: Well, more specifically, that it incorporated real facts about the world, in this case, the existence of the four kings, uh, mm-hmm. into its uh, scriptures, but distorted it to fit its narrative. Um, and yeah, like you say, either it was... Um, Deliberate, uh, or it was something that came as you know, uh, as a distortion of a time as uh, things were interpreted and rewritten, kind of like the actual Bible, uh, where mm-hmm. it, yeah. it was just modified and changed and retranslated until it became something that wasn't quite uh, the original.
0: Yeah, then we, we talked about it on the podcast last time about volume 24 when we first introduced the priest that this you know is really like the holy roman church at the time which had steamrolled various you know pagan beliefs and incorporated in their own sometimes as a way to fold in a group of people and expand the reach of the church by saying oh yeah yeah we got your special people in here we got your special people in our book you know we we folded it in some way so yeah 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 we got that don't worry about it but really (laughs) that their whole belief system was being subjugated you know, for the purposes of spreading Christianity. Um, what else? You know, Guts gets to gets to uh, reflect on what he's seen, which is an important moment because it's really the pivot from you know this very huge type of power to back to Guts, and he says, you know, that's my girl up, back up there. <laughs> he's getting I, respect for
2: her. I find it interesting because, like, he's. You know, we see all these sh- shots of people reacting to Guts, swinging his big sword and murdering a bunch of stuff. Everyone gasps and is like, oh, can you really call that a sword? And you finally see him react to something similarly. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he's like, you know, he looks up there and, he, and you see, he sees this like goofy little kid standing on the top of the roof. It's like, yeah. damn.
3: Yeah, you know? I, you know, I, I have to agree with that. And I think in this episode... I mean, in this volume in general, but uh, in this episode, we start to see it. Shukye comes across as kind of a badass, uh, obviously in a completely different way from Gus, but still. Um, and, and that shows to me in the great explanations that she gives all around this episode to the priest. Uh, it, it anchors her character as being very wise, despite her young age. Uh, you know the fact when she says a magician builds a sanctuary within her mind, not one made of stone. Prayer isn't about chanting mantras or meditating on one's own wishes. It begins by recognizing the beings you're contacting. all these kind of things. It's like, yeah, she's just this uh shy kid, a little girl, but uh, her knowledge and her practice, her discipline, her skills those have actual weight and they're very, very powerful. It's also something, obviously, that uh, comes into play with Isidro later on when he realizes a gap uh, between them. Yep. Two other small
0: things uh, is that, you know, with the establishment of this barrier around the temple, it's almost like mission accomplished. You know, they they have a fortified wall around the temple and they can probably start smashing the trolls at their leisure, but, you know, immediately, you know, the stakes change because the ogre arrives... Uh, just before that, we see Guts kind of right in front of the wall uh, facing the trolls. And, you know, you see um, the gore on his Dragon Slayer is actually also, you know, burning up at the tip of the Dragon Slayer. I thought that was a nice little detailed touch because it's within the barrier itself. So it also is disintegrating. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I agree. And... um When the ogre arrives, you know, it goes straight from Guts talking to Shirke, or talking at Shirke, really kind of admiring her work. And then he gets a sensation in in his brand uh, about the ogre's arrival. So it's, you know, he's detecting it just like he detected the trolls, which is consistent with before. Shirke also gets that same sensation. You presume that's what she's reacting to. The trolls even react to it. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, When he arrived, when the ogre arrives.
3: Well, they can feel the thumping on the ground, you
0: know. (laughs) Right. Yeah. The the look of the ogre as well is just kind of... It's really unique. Um, Mira didn't have to make him look like this. <laughs> with his weird bisected face and his nose on the top of his in the It's just... Mm, real gross. and um,
3: I love it. I, honestly, I love it. It's very unique. He's an ugliest motherfucker. He's not <laughs> yeah. at all cool looking. Basically, he's clearly yeah. dangerous. And I like that. I mean... Mm. It would be easy to just make it a big, burly, super troll or whatever now. Yeah, a big troll, right? It's just an ugly-ass monster, and it's just, yeah, it's just repulsive. But it's also immediately clear it's a very dangerous monster. It's a dangerous beast. And, And I like that. And more to the point, I like that the episode ends with a great explanation on the rules and limitations of spells, which in this case is that physical objects aren't affected by the barrier. And that's something that's come into focus a couple more times since then, uh, throughout the series, with the Pishacha and the uh, birded skeleton. And it's just something, it's it's very, hard to say, practical. The draw arrives, he tries to penetrate, even though it's huge, he can't get through, and immediately it's like, hmm, here's this wooden beam, blam, it starts, you know, throwing a barrage into the temple. Yeah. So I, I just find it, yeah, it's a great escalation, and I just love that monster.
0: I like how the, I mentioned it before about how there's these different scenes uh, of action throughout uh, the temple and around the temple. And here we have the beam flying into the front of the church, and then that causes stones to fall inside the church. So it shows that level of interaction because you're dealing with one physical space with different layers of action. I just love that attention to detail. Mm -hmm. Um, That's it for me.
3: Well, I got a couple more things to, to mention. Uh, the first, I find it interesting that we sh- show that, uh, we see that, uh, healing effects from elves are boosted up by the, oh, yeah. uh, by the, the protection spell. Uh, it's an interesting touch. It's not just something that against evil, it also boosts up, uh, benevolent, uh, powers. And that's what allows Morgan to survive. Otherwise, he pretty much implied he would have died. So that's pretty cool. Uh, I also find it very interesting that Shuke uh, says the four kings love and protect humans. Um, it's just something I think is important to remember because you might think, eh, they're just forces of nature. They embody their uh, individual elements, fire, water. Like, does water love humans? Not particularly. But yeah, she, she does say that these beings, love and protect us so i find that uh, interesting and worth keeping in mind uh, because i think it might come into play even later on uh, in the series um uh, past volume forty, yeah. basically
0: I, I do think it's one of those things that stands out that kind of bears explanation because as you said the, the natural conclusion i think would be if these are great beings that dwell in the astral world divorced from you know the world that humans have basically made for themselves what would be the reason for that kind of devotion? I think it must be something ancient, or, or somehow tied to their existence. Maybe I don't know.
3: Yeah, and it might just be that they, yeah, they've been there as long as the world, and they care for all the beings that inhabit it, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, and there's also one other thing: is there's a pretty bad mistranslation by Darkos in this episode. Um, in some panel, Shuki says, are for those." As for those who exist as ideas, the mind is all with which we can perceive them. And um, I don't know why they, they worded it like that, specifically using the word ideas. Uh, she uses the same word twice. She uses kokoro, which can mean mind, heart, or spirit, depending on the context. And if we translate a sentence literally, it's something like, only the mind can touch those who are the mind itself. And, um, the problem with that choice of word here is that it gives people, it can give people the wrong idea, uh, pun intended. Uh, the first potential problem is thinking she's talking about idea, as in word of idea.
0: <laughs> oh, God.
3: Yeah. But I mean, it, you know, you know, it could yeah. happen. And she's not, because that Greek word, uh, used in that context as a reference to Plato corresponds to the Japanese word. and it has a different meaning that of the essence of or the true nature of something and she talks about it uh, in volume 24 when she's explaining how the words work and because these are the four kings of the world you might think well they dwell deep they might be on the same level as the idea of evil but no it's not at all what she's saying and the second potential mistake would be to believe the four kings are just mere ideas uh, and one has to believe in them to make them real or something But no, again, they're very real beings. Uh, What she's saying here is simply that because they're spirits, you can only perceive them with your mind, which is pretty obvious, all things considered. Mm -hmm. But the way it was translated, uh, yeah, I don't know. I find that very, very confusing. So, yeah, just wanted to point that out. I think it's
0: just the usage of the word ideas is kind of a can of worms, uh, and that can mean can be interpreted many ways, as you've already explained. So I yeah. think that's, the, that's I, the the slippery slope.
3: I think they probably just thought, oh, well, you know, it's it's hard to say there's a the mind itself or there are minds itself, whatever. So we'll just replace mind ideas, what's in the mm-hmm. mind, ideas are in the mind. But yeah, it's uh, maybe just a step too far and becomes confusing. And um, yeah, I thought it was worth uh, pointing out.
0: Yeah, but I think it's, again, one of those errors where you could say it's a simple mistranslation, but it, I think it leads to muddying the waters in, in a moment. It's supposed to be providing clarity. You know, you shouldn't be left with more questions because of a mistranslated word. You know, I think that's. that's. Uh, I agree. Hurts.
3: I agree completely. Over to you, Azil. All right. So the next one is Evil Horde, part one. Uh, The episode opens with thunder rumbling in the clouds as uh, rain starts pouring. We see a frog-like creature emerge from the river and head towards the village. Meanwhile, the ogre continues to shell the temple with wooden beams. Shirke wants to cast another spell to deal with it, but she needs time. Guts steps forward and challenges the ogre. Defying even his companion's expectations, he manages to handle the ogre with relative ease in four great action pages. However, the beast is as tough as it is big, and it won't go down easy. Gaz goes in for the kill before the ogre can regenerate, but is stopped in his tracks by two watery projectiles. The kelpie has arrived. Shirke explains that these are particularly dangerous in the rain, and, that the, and the trolls uh, serve to demonstrate that fact by getting blown in the face. Uh, Sheriff Serpico jumps down to face it alongside Guts. And so the episode ends. So, um I love that close-up of Guts' face when he fights the Ogre, as well as his fight with it. Uh, we don't always take the time to underline it during the reads, but I think it just has awesome action, and we mentioned it in the previous episodes, this volume is non-stop action, is great I mean Berserk is very deep and so on, but we we still read it for the action, right? And uh yeah, yeah it's just it's just great action. Uh, and I love those four pages. Bomb in the knee, steps up, cuts the arm off, you turn us back, cut him in the guts, just perfect. Um go ahead. No, I'm just. I'm, I'm also just basically
0: laying it on thicker. I just like how you can also tell that guts somewhat improvised based on the way the ogre was moving. That he pivoted and then he was able to spill his guts. I just love that that swivel that pivot he makes, where um, you're just seeing a little cut of him turning right before he slices the guts open. Yeah, I just love that little shot of guts there when he's spinning. Yeah, he's
3: great. And even the way uh, after. You know, something that's great is that the the, the, the ogre just picks up a beam and th- throws it afterwards. Oh, yeah. A- and Gus also manages to block it. And that's something I love in this fight. Uh, I'm going to get back to it. But I love that the opponents, both parties are made to look badass. It's not just one is stupid and bumbling and the other is great. Both of them are formidable. Um, anyway, I also love that Puck is the only one who's like, nah, he'll be fine. He's used to this sort of thing.
1: Yeah.
3: <laughs> Even if he drew, everyone is doubting him. But Puck, he knows. He's been there. I just think that's cool. I wish we still had moments like that with Puck. <laughs> yeah. Oh, real Puck, too. Me too. too. Real, yeah. real
1: Puck, not SD Puck.
3: <laughs> yeah, we're going we're gonna to write a petition to Mira. Yeah, um, I'll sign it. Also, like I, I find the trolls hilarious here. They immediately start eating the ogre's arm and inarts. <laughs> they're literally they're not even dead yet. Yeah, <laughs> they're like the definition of vermin. Seriously, they're like yeah. rats. Basically, it's just it's like just, me at
1: the buffet. Yeah, <laughs> <I'm>
3: hungry. <laughs> uh, they're barely refilling the racks, and your ladies there, you know stuffing your face. <laughs> they put more crab legs out. Go, go, go. Yeah. <laughs> I also think it's um it's great it, you know has a great way to up the ante here. Uh, we got the trolls uh, the trolls, then we get uh, an ogre, you know, giant monster in this case. Then we get a magic using monster in the kelpie, so it's just he stacks it on. And I, I think the fact he brings it the magic using monster is also a way to say yeah, even those guys can use magic in some form. So I think that's pretty cool. And I also love the fact that the kelpie just blasts trolls. It arrives and starts killing trolls right away. Uh, again, I think that uh, to the realism of the scene, the fact is just an animal that's hungry and like they aren't all united against the main characters. The Ogre doesn't care about the trolls. The Kelpie doesn't care about the trolls or the Ogre. They're all in for themselves. It's not a simple bad guys versus good guys thing. It's kind of a clusterfuck. So uh, I like that. Uh, I like the fact Serpico takes the time to encourage Farnese before jumping down from the roof. Uh, And also, once he's done, he reflects on how her changing affects him, how he needs to evolve as well. I I thought that was uh, pretty thoughtful. Uh, And also, obviously, I appreciate that Shuke is finally fucking impressed, at last, uh, both by Guts and his prowess, (laughs) and by the speed at which Serpico learned to use those new items. Uh, you know, clearly she's, um how to say, she's guarded. She's not easy to, you know, she, she knows a lot of things. So she's not easy to impress. But yeah, finally she, she actually impressed by, by what Gus is doing. So that's, that's nice to see her, uh, her differences being broken down a little bit. Uh, and just to finish, I have a couple, uh, notes about, um, Origins of the word kelpie and augur. Um, so kelpie is a traditional monster in Scottish folklore, for those who don't know. It's a horse that drones people in lakes. Uh, and augur uh, is a word of French origin made famous by the Tales of Perrault. And what's worth noting here is that Murat spells it in a way that indicates it's borrowed from French. So it's Orguru and not from English, which would be auga. So uh I know American people sometimes have trouble with that. But uh yeah, it indicates the way it's done, indicates what language it's from. And in this case um yura took it from French, so so that was interesting. That's it for me. Shirkay's um kind of awareness of her
0: having valuable, you know, efficient companions, it's kind of like being put in group work in school where you're the smart one and you think you're going to have to do all the work yourself with just lazy assholes around you. Then you realize, Oh, actually (laughs) they're competent. Amazing. That's great. Yeah, That's a a
3: pretty good way to put (laughs) it.
0: Um, the Kelpie, I remember when this episode's preview came out, we just had text previews from Olivier, I think at the time. And all he'd said was donkey frog, question mark, or something frog. like that, <laughs> donkey frog. That's how, it, that's how it had been described by Japanese readers at the time that the, something arrived that looks like a donkey frog. And everyone was like, if that's all you had to go on with this episode, we we're like, what the fuck is happening in Berserk? If there's a donkey frog, like, what does that even mean? <laughs> But um, it does look like a donkey and it does look like a frog. So I see what that person was saying. With Years that.
1: later, um, yes, it's, it's yeah. much clearer.
0: <laughs> the full page spread of Guts showing uh, kind of putting his sword in the ground. Very cool. Miara spent time on that one with Guts looking very cool in the, in the rain about to face off with this massive monster. It's just one of those heroic moments um, for, for Guts to you know make a, a stand for himself. And we already talked about how cool it is to go toe to toe with this massive, towering thing, and him to just so easily dismember it. Um, also, like when he deflects the beam, it goes flying straight into the mouth of the troll behind him. Like yeah. it just deflects right oh into his God. face. Just a good, nice. Just like, another day in Evil the office 4. For guts. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just imagining the Resident Evil Four uh, headshot sound whenever it just makes a big <laughs> splat sound. Probably sounded pretty good and yeah the kelpie i like how shirke explains that kind of like granularly explains how it's able to do that because it's able to subjugate base basically it's a water elemental and thus it can have control over lower level water elementals in the air so it can make you it can it can fire water bullets basically but what happened, that that the basis of that explanation comes in later when a greater elemental comes into the play so that's that come that comes back around later on. Um, Serpico looks like he's about to die in this scene. You know, he gives uh, Farnese like a good, like, please do your best to take care of Casca and then gives her a smile and then jumps off. And then we have this, like, kind of like a forlorn warrior at the end here where he's having like an, uh, what's the word internal monologue about himself, about how he's seen Farnese grow. Um, it really is. It seems like he's about to put his life on the line. And of course he is. But, you know, from a reader's perspective, you're thinking, is this it? Is he going to die? Is this is his is final cool moment?
1: Oh, wow. I never thought about it that way. As a reader, I, I knew that he survived this fight. But when you're reading yeah. episodically, it must have been different.
0: Yeah, I, I can't remember exactly. But, I mean, I'm just saying the way it's framed, it makes it yeah. look like it's like a last stand kind of
1: yeah. thing. Yeah,
3: yeah.
0: Um, particularly the last panel, you know, Spirits of the Wind current power. Powered. It's, it's really cool water effect or wind effect around him at the time.
3: I, uh, yeah, I like the, the panel where he's walking. You just see his shoes uh, mm-hmm. with guts and the cup in the back. Um, and yeah, like you said, I think it's meant to convey that he knows it's not going to be an easy fight. It's going to be tough and uh, he doesn't know if he'll make it, basically. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's it for me. One thing I
2: think is really interesting is um, you're talking about the part where Guts puts his sword in the ground and he's like, you got it boss I, I think it's it's interesting how Guts is usually like, taken on a leadership position and in this whole uh, fight, he does a lot but uh, you start to see him kind of defer to Shirke a bit um, because she like, is demonstrated to him like, yeah, she's badass and she knows what the hell she's doing and um i don't know i find that kind of interesting
3: yeah and it's also yeah. meant to be her mission us and her and they are helping her but it's still yeah. her you know little thing to do so he's being respectful of that and i agree it's uh it's very thoughtful of him i mean black swordsman era gus First, I mean, he would never accept anything. He wouldn't, I mean, the whole situation it would be impossible to begin with. But the point is, he wasn't exactly that kind of a thoughtful guy. And even when you think back to his uh, golden age self, he tended to just go do things by himself. And obviously, he still does here. He pretty much just steps up when he wants. But he does have that uh, way of shirking leadership in a way, almost. It's something he also does later on in, uh, in Britannis, even, uh, on, on the seahorse. He tends to defer to others, even though he's a de facto leader himself. Like he, he doesn't take on the mantle of leadership, but others follow him anyway, just because he's just guts, you know? So it's kind of an interesting way for him to behave. I agree with that.
0: I remember people saying that that was like a big moment for them a long long ago. And to me, it just felt very natural because you know Guts is not to me a natural leader. He's he's very charismatic. He's a badass fighter, but like he's a front lines fighter first and foremost. He's not the guy to sit in the back and direct yeah. traffic from a you know the cavalry from this flank he goes this way. It's just not really his thing. You know he's. He's there on the front lines doing doing his business. He knows his he knows his circle of influence, and he, and he sticks there. So when Shirke seems to express a lot of knowledge about astral creatures and, really, as you said, it's her task to me, it's like, yeah, sure. Even though she's a little kid, I guess, is the big, like, whoa thing. Um, but he, res- I think he respects her knowledge, and he gets it.
3: Yeah, and he yeah. He's also, I think it shows his confidence uh that she can get it done that if she casts a spell is gonna get the job done. It's also a a mark of trust, I, I believe.
0: It might also be deeper than that, like Guts just knows as long as I have the Dragon Slayer, we're gonna be good. You know, we're we're good no matter what happened. Even if she fucks <laughs> up. I have this big thing.
3: <laughs> and also he simply wanted to kill the, the ogre. There you go. I mean Yeah. It would be different if she was, okay Guts Don't go fight that creature. Then he'd be like, yeah. Then it would be a case where he jumps in and she's like, Gutsad, no, don't do it. (laughs) She does, though. She tries to stop
0: him. She says, you mustn't. And then he's like, fuck you. I got
1: this. (laughs) (laughs) That's it for me. All right. Let's move on to Evil Horde Part 2. So the showdown with Guts, the Ogre, and Serpico and the Kelpie has officially begun. Or as Puck called it, uh, an open weight uh, tag match. I think it was open open weight division tag match. Uh, Serpico decides that the Kelpie is his kind of enemy, while Guts continues his work on the ogre. Guts proceeds to dodge the attacks of the massive creature and gets a hit in with the Dragon Slayer, while the villagers continue to watch on in awe. The trolls spot the downed ogre and attempt to get to chowing down again, but meat isn't back on the menu just yet, boys. The ogre smacks the trolls into the barrier and uh, it dissolves. Watching on, Isidro laments that he has no way to help his companions yet again. Uh, Shirky returns to her work, using her astral body to attempt to search for another uh, spirit to assist them. Going deeper than before, she finds an ethereal form of the Sanctuary that the Temple of the Holy See was built on top of. She determines that this shrine is of uh, und- undines or Undines or water elementals. Back below the temple, Serpico is trying to dodge the Kelpie's attacks, but keeps getting pelted with bursts of water. He suddenly slips and is grabbed by the Kelpie's sticky tongue, which he quickly slices with the sylph sword. Nevertheless, he's having difficulty making headway against the creature, which blocks all of his wind attacks with the wall of water. Suddenly, the Kelpie summons water elementals to drown Serpico where he stands. Though he initially panics, Serpico summons his wits and uses the sylph sword to banish the water, and uses the idea to finally defeat the Kelpie with wind elementals to simply move the water elementals out of the way.
3: I actually love uh, that Serpico and the Kelpie are evenly matched in uh, their handling of their respective elements. It's uh, what I was alluding to earlier with Guts and the and the Ogre. I like that this is a tough fight for Serpico. I appreciate that. It's not all easy peasy. He gets wounded. He barely makes it a couple times. He gets uh, hit in the shoulder by the water, which takes him down. Then he's uh, immobilized by the tongue, and the kelpie is about to blast him uh, with the water bullets. Uh, and he managed by cutting the tongue. He deflects it, and so on. It's it's just boss combatants are made out to be competent and very deadly, and I, I appreciate that. And it's the same for guts and the ogre. It's all too easy for an author to show fights in a simplified manner, uh, you know, with one party dominating until a flow is found and then exploited and it's a reversal. But here it's a more complex, dynamic affair. And I just, yeah, I just very much appreciate that. Uh, I think it's very thoughtful of Mira to, to do things like that. And when you're reading a story like Berserk, you, you know, I can really appreciate that kind of stuff.
1: That's a really good point about Serpico having a competent match against him because before then he's been having really easy time with the trolls. Uh, so I think, yeah, that's a that's an interesting observation.
3: Yeah. I also find the augur just hilariously brutal, you know? I mean, yeah. uh, Guts smashes its wooden beam, fine. He picks up a whole fucking roof and throws <laughs> it at him. And of course, <laughs> Guts cuts through it, but it's still just, I mean, that's my kind of, I, I agree with Guts, that's my kind of monster. <laughs> just <laughs> throw a house at, at his enemy. Yeah,
0: I like how they delineate, uh, the opponents at the very start. You know, Serpico's like, this guy's more mine. And then Guts is like, this guy's more my style, simpler. And yeah, yeah the, the roof gets thrown. The, the, the look on the ogre's face is like, I got you now. And as he drops the roof and then Guts just slices it in half, jumps on what's like his knee to get leverage yeah. up to his chest or neck area.
3: Yeah, on his knee and just. Cut him down. <laughs> the uh. trolls, the trolls try to get
0: in on it and the ogre starts swatting at them or throwing, he throws a troll at it guts. Yeah. Yeah. Which grows past the barrier. What a great scene. So yeah. much to see.
3: Yeah. It's just, um, just
0: amazing. But I only have two notes here. Um, I like that we see what looks like the original like foundation stones for what was before this temple. We see these rocks jutting out of the water, which was probably like, you know, a thousand years ago or more, what this place of worship once was like in the past. And and then it basically fast forward to modern times. This this the land that this site sits on has been transformed into a temple. So it's interesting that we got to see a little bit of that. Um, And also just like, if you think about Azeel, you touched on this a little bit, but I wanted to say from an artistic perspective, if your series is a fantasy series, um, you think magic gets used and you think it'd be swords and sorcery, right? I wouldn't necessarily always assume that a swordsman would be fighting a horse and that horse would have magic water powers. And like, but how that's depicted never jumps out to you as being out of character. The way all these actions are depicted, it's like it's, cut from the same cloth you know i think that's really impressive given that this series is otherwise very much about you know humans versus humans suddenly we have this you know horse frog donkey frog <laughs> shooting water <laughs> bullets at this guy and it just looks like yeah looks like it's that's how it's supposed to be um i think that's a, it's a big achievement to do that i'm not sure how i would do that
3: yeah i agree personally. it's uh, it's part of Mira's genius is that he got inspiration from traditional folklore on one hand. Of course, he modified it in a way where it's almost unrecognizable if it wasn't for the name. And he adapts these creatures to his world uh, in a manner where they fit in perfectly. Like you never to me, that's uh, really the beauty of, of Volume 24, uh, 25, 26. His magic is introduced in a big way into the world. I mean a different kind of magic from the one we used to know and when you read it it's like it feels completely natural it's not out of place it's not disruptive uh like I said uh, at the beginning the place of guts is never never disrupted guts remains that badass guy who can do badass stuff these new monsters who were introduced we get the kelpie obviously and and that water power but we also got more classical uh, creatures like the um, trolls and the auger who's like an apostle kind of creature. And we actually... That's also played on later on in in Falconia um, when you see him in the arena with uh, Volkov. So all of these things are, are done in a coherent manner. And even Shurika's magic itself. I mean, we, we mentioned that in Volume uh, 24, but you ask a random guy what a magician would do, and he'll say, well, she can just shoot fireballs magic missiles like you know, shoot a thunderbolt or something but Mira chose to do it in a very different manner where her powers are complementary uh, to what we already had it's a slower process it calls upon uh, spirits who are unreachable by normal humans and that's why it's not more widespread and when it comes it's devastating it's something like we see in the form of the uh, the, the barrier of the four cardinal um, kings. It's a protective thing, very very impossible to penetrate. And when it's uh, the leader of the death later on, it just ravages everything.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that's it. We're gonna stop it there uh, for this reread. And we're gonna continue on for the part two with the next episode uh, when things. Start wrapping up here in Enoch Village. But um, thanks again for listening, everybody. And I also want to do a quick thank you to our top patron uh, Patreon donors. Uh, right now they are Incantation, M, Atukas, Dirtiest M, Chris Spruill, and Rombad. So thanks again, guys, for being top donors for our Patreon. If you want to check out more, go to our patreon.com sknet, where you can get uh, bonus material from Azil, who's been updating every, it feels like every three or four days um, with just kind of like additional insight into translations, into little tidbits about Berserk. Uh, I think he's been doing a really awesome job.
1: It's been really informative. Yeah. Thank you guys for setting everything up.
0: Yeah. I think those updates are available for even some of the lower tiers. If you wanted to get access to just those, uh, with the, the picture for the, for the podcast, I think it's 3 or 4 or 5 something like that. Go to the site and check it out. You probably are looking at it right now and you already know more than I do about it. So <laughs> patreon.com/sknet